Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. In May 2018, the MacArthur Memorial hosted a World War I symposium that explored how the experience of World War I shaped many of America's World War II leaders. Mike Miller, Emeritus Head of the Marine Corps History Division, talked about the Marine Corps and how Harry S. Truman's service in the U.S. Army during World War I forever influenced his opinion of the Marine Corps. Marines and Harry Truman. And when I first agreed to come down and talk, I said, are you sure you know what you're going to get in for, inviting a Marine historian down to the MacArthur Memorial? And they most assuredly said, yes, come down and, and say your piece. So uh, I'd like to begin with this slide, which is the, uh, how many people are familiar with this cartoon, the Barnaby series? How many people are familiar with Crockett Johnson? You know, the, the, um, the uh, well, this was a World War II era cartoon, and it has everything to do with what I'm about to say. But I love to be able to get a reference like this in because, you know, it's kind of cool. But part of the uh, Barnaby series, Barnaby Baxter, uh, he had an imaginary friend, so to speak, like we all do, and his name was Mr. O'Malley, who always got him in trouble. And so part of this cartoon was the young man's chatter in marching society. It doesn't make sense right now, but it will. But uh, just remember the, the chatter society. Okay, so I'm gonna be able to, I'm gonna take you on a journey. I'm gonna take you to Guantanamo Bay. I'm gonna take you to Peking, China, uh, to Veracruz, Mexico, Bella Wood, and other places, basically, I'm going to start in 1900, 1898, and finish in 1950. So I'm going to accomplish all that with a cartoon. But the point is, you know, I made some, some really important uh, decisions about how to talk about Truman and the Marines. Truman, I could, I could have gone one of two ways, which is one of which is the atomic bomb. You know, and when, undoubtedly that's, that's one of the, that's maybe even the bigger one than this. But then I thought, well, no, the unification uh, battle between the armed forces after World War II is the, probably the most le lasting legacy of his in uh, terms of the Army, Marine Corps, Navy, and Air Force that lasts to today. So, but that needs context. Too often, you know, historical events are dealt with without the context. So how does Guantanamo Bay fit into that context? So if you look at the newspaper clipping there, You'll see up there on the, 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 the pretty picture of the Marines landing at Guantanamo Bay, 1898. A battalion of Marines takes Camp McCalla, establishes the base that's there today. But if you look at the rest of the paper, it's everybody else. But the Marine, look what the Marines got with one battalion. And guess who was there with them to talk about it? Stephen Crane. One of the best uh, accounts of military uh, action is his wounds in the rain of the, of the battles down there Guantanamo and after including the wig-wag flag of uh, the Medal of Honor fame there. So you'll see, you're going to see a pattern develop of battalions and regiments doing things and the famous reporters and such trailing along with them. So this is uh, 1898. Let's go to Peking. Take a look at this. All right, Peking, China. Basically, the, uh, there's, a, there's a detachment of Marines that comes off of ships that goes to rescue uh, the consulates there in Beijing. Uh, and then more Marines come, as well as Army, Army uh, two regiments of Army go there as well. 
and all the international forces, but look who gets the newspaper clipping. Those Marines haven't even gone yet, and they're there and they're, they're whites, and they go, oh, big picture of the Marines. We see a pattern here. But also notice that, and that's one of the themes that I think all of the, all of this, the uh, talks today have been about, is the impact of World War I on America and you know, through the armed forces. But you see, we're starting to see Marines do things in places far away from our shores, in that case China, because America is becoming an international nation really for the first time. So we, our interests now belong in China, they belong in, in Cuba, and they belong in uh, a lot of other interesting places. So what that does is create a problem with mission. And there's some talk about Truman, but I'm going to talk about Teddy Roosevelt first, because Teddy Roosevelt uh, did not like the Marine Corps. And he was determined to get rid of them. He said, uh, Navy folks can do this just as well as Marines, and they can be a lot less irritating. And they can, we can do landing parties of sailors and replace those Marines and then increase our own strength and our funding. Guess what? We'll get all that Marine Corps dough. So the admirals went to Teddy Roosevelt, and he agreed with him. Roosevelt, remember the Great White Fleet, all of that Navy stuff? Did not include the Marine Corps in his, in his vision. And so, but just, and just before he left, you know the, the, the break between him and Taft, just before he left, he uh, had a pres presidential declaration that we're going to bring Marines off the battleships. And then he, he exited left, stage left, left it for Taft to figure out. So there's a huge controversy. Some, some admirals support the Marines, some don't. But it's really another, it's one of the many times that one service or the other tries to eradicate Marines. And believe, you know, we are paranoid, but we have reasons to be paranoid. So it's almost happened. There, there might not have been a Marine Corps to go to World War I had they pulled these Marines off. They would have been basically guarding our uh, Navy ports, Navy yards, you know, basically being cops. Defeated. And how did, was it defeated? Defeated because the American public rose up and one of the Marines' uh, fathers was head of the House uh, Naval Affairs Committee uh, and basically brought it to the America's attention. And they, they said, no, we want Marines. A lot of it was based on China and Guantanamo Bay. But you can start to see people are getting irritated with these Marines. I mean, once, you know, the Army especially. So they survive. And then comes 1914 in Veracruz. And then the Marines have almost gone out of business, this time again by the Navy. And they said, Marines, we challenge you to make a landing, put up heavy naval weapons, and participated in 1914 uh, naval exercises down in Calabria. And if you can't do it, you know, your funding is, out, is gone. So luckily, John A. Lejeune, the greatest Marine of them all, takes command of it, uh, takes that, that unit down there to, to Calabria, and succeeds in, in planting the guns and bringing in actually some aviation into the fleet exercises. So, you know, it's another, another time the Marines could have gone away, but uh, an uprising and revolution in Mexico brought the Marines to Veracruz in uh, April of 1914. So the Marines, luckily, are still there from the Veracruz exercises, and they keep them together. And so they go to Veracruz. And guess what? Who's there soon after to report on Jack London, John Harding uh, Davis, and some, a lot of other reporters? You know, see that trend continues to grow. So Marines make headlines again. Marines land. But one thing that significantly happens at Veracruz is the Navy no longer says we can do landing parties because they go ashore in their Navy whites 
and they go into the streets of Veracruz, and they, they are shot down from all directions. So that really, they just gave up on that. We, we no longer uh, go against that. So the Marines still have their mission of, of going ashore from the ships. Uh, but the point is that the Army Brigade comes in to replace the, the Navy and Marines that are ashore, but commanded by you know, the guys you've already heard his name, Funston. And the Marines are supposed to go back aboard the ships, and Lejeune says to the Admiral, Badger, he says, I really want to stay. I want to be part of this occupation. I want to, I want to go alongside the Army. And the Admiral says, are you sure? You, you know, be careful what you ask for. And they say, yeah, I want to go. So they let the Marines stay ashore, and they become part of the Army Brigade under Funston. So Funston is a guy that, that could work with both Marines and Army. He was not opposed to them. Hell, I, I appreciate the, the, uh, the uh, reinforcements. And so they remained in Veracruz. So you start to see what's going to happen in 1917 and 18 when the Marines go over and become part of the Army Division, the second division. Lejeune is already seeing this thing out there. Okay, and then to France in 1917. Unfortunately, uh, Funston dies of disease, and Pershing is the one that goes over. It takes the, unfortunately for the Marines, and takes command. And one of the things he does not want are any Marines in France. Adamantly, no Marines in France. Why? What does he got against the Marine Corps? You know, he's tired. He says, well, the Army, this is the Army's mission. It is not the Marine Corps mission. This is the Army's mission. And you get all the, you'll get all the credit anyway, so just, you know, go do your thing, we do our thing. So uh, the, the Marine Corps doesn't take that lying down, and they take it up through the Secretary of Navy, and it takes it up. So it takes a presidential declaration by President Wilson to get the 5th Marine Regiment to France. The 5th Marine Regiment goes up to get on board the, the transports, and the Army says, we, we can't transport you, we're full. And the, Navy, and the Navy says, don't worry about it, we'll take you over on our ships. So the 5th Marines actually gets there amongst, with the 1st Division, with the 1st. So they're, they're, you know, again, the first to fight. But they're, the Marine Corps is looking at an entire division to go into the AEF, an entire division. You know, I've seen the, the, the TAO, TAO for all of those. They include armored cars, heavy artillery, the whole bit. Pershing is having none of that. So he has these Marines. What did he do with them? He starts putting them along lines of supply. And guarding things, you know, I mean, like things that Marines do, and because he says they're they're too different than us, you know, they have different, you know, regulations and so forth, and so again, back to Wilson. Wilson says, I'll send over the six Marines. So he has to issue another presidential proclamation. The six Marines will now go over and become part of the AEF. It takes the President of the United States twice to send Marines to France. So the Marines have got their nose under the tent now, and they want to keep sending Marines over. So what is he? What is he going to do with them? He says, "Well, you know, if you know, I'll I'll, I'll use these gentlemen in their best uh, duty, which is to guard things, but no combat." And then Wilson goes to Baker and says, "Yes, you will." And Baker says to Pershing, "Yes, you will." And Pershing says, "I will," but that's it. No more Marines. Just one brigade. So it becomes the fourth brigade of the Second Army Division. So, uh, and that's Siebert. Siebert initially, and then it goes on to Omar Bunday, who commands the division. And so they are among the first to fight. The first division goes in first, the second division goes in second. Uh, and those pesky Marines uh, get good luck because they go to a place called Bella Wood. 
on June 1st. They're supposed to go up and support the first division and continue, but they decide, they were pulled to stop the Germans. Now, this is a place of hollow ground to all Marines. Um, this is a place where the Commandant or ACMAC goes every year, Memorial Day, to celebrate uh, this, this American victory with the French. And there's, uh, if you've never been, you should go because you see from all, you know, you're there in the American Cemetery, that's where it takes place. And you see from all directions these, the French people coming, walking with their flags by, by several thousand, just walking up to, you know, celebrate us fighting with them and their, and our sacrifice. So it's a very moving thing. But in marine lore, this has become uh, perhaps uh, more than it was because it's one brigade against the whole German army? No, no, no. It's one brigade amongst many brigades, including a lot of French troops that, that stopped the Germans. It's not the Marines that stopped them. But they are part of the effort that does it. But remember the trend? Floyd Gibbons, I think somebody's already mentioned one of his works about von Richthofen, and uh, he is there with the Marines. He wants to go where the action is. So he goes there, and on June 6th, he goes across the wheat fields with the 5th Marines about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And maybe that's not such a great choice on his part at the moment, but he's out there when the German machine guns start taking down the Marines. And one of the things I always talk to the Marines about when I, when I, when I talk about this and take them out there is, I mean, how many people think charging machine guns through, through wheat fields is good tactics? Crickets. They went out there, and so the battalion commander was shot in front of him and makes it into the woods. He's hit in the arm, goes face down in the, in the, in the wheat. Another bullet comes, hits the ground in front of him, goes up through his head, takes out an eye, and exits through his helmet. So he's reported dead. They see him out in the field. They can't get him out until dark. It's the Germans, they don't care if you're wounded or not. They just keep sweeping the field. So his last dispatch has gone back that morning to Paris to the censors. And Bergen's rule is no unit will be mentioned by their name. In other words, it won't be the second division and definitely not the Marines. It's not supposed to happen. But the censor had that last dispatch. He's also heard that he's been killed. So he said, I'm not going to change a word of it. It's going to go through as it is, and it does, and it does. So this battle goes on for uh, about a month, but all of the allies take the Marines and make them superheroes. Why is this, does this happen? It's not you know, one dispatch going back, but look at this. And the key is that the allies need morale. What's just happened to them since March with the Germans? Germans have pummeled them. They've almost taken the Brits out of the war. The Brits would never admit that, but they almost do. And they push within 40 miles of Paris. And even though charging across those wheat fields, we talked about casualties, worst, worst day in Marine Corps history ever up to that point for killed, wounded. And, but the Allies need this. So here's our counterattack. And like it or not, the tactics on that day were, won't be mentioned, but we, we take them on. We take Bellow Wood, which they didn't. But, it, you know... That's the way newspaper guys are. So it went across the world. Marines, Bella Wood, and became part of Marine Corps lore, you know, to this day. And you're, it's good luck to go and drink from this fountain in the town of Below, from this old uh, 
gross uh, bulldog statue, but it, I do it every time I go. Uh, but, you know, so this is a victory in itself that the Marines take. Now imagine Pershing when he, when he sees this. He is not happy. And then about three days later, no more mentions of Marines. You look for the papers, none. None. But the resentment is there now, particularly in the American 2nd Division. If you looked at uh, this, this clipping, it's about Clemenceau talking. He wants to come and see Bella Wood, and he wants to meet the Americans that, that took it. So Bundy is the commander of the division. Uh, the Army Brigade is not heavily engaged. They're on the right towards Vaux. The Marines are in the wood while this, while this visit is going on, fighting uh, the Germans uh, for their lives, really. And Clemenceau comes, and guess what? No Marines are invited to meet him. Only army officers, and they all come back. They meet, they meet the premier, and they go away. And the Marines don't find out until the next day when the papers come out. But the interesting thing about that is, the commander of the Bean Brigade is an army officer named called James G. Harbord, who used to be chief of staff for General Pershing. You know, don't make the chief, former chief of staff, angry. So Harbord sends through the chain of command. Why weren't we invited? And he gets to Pershing. Clemenceau comes back, and he, meet, he does meet the Marines. But it begins a, a, a rift between the Marines and the Army. And you start to see this pervade the ADF. Soldiers that never met a Marine, oh, the Marines get all the credit, you know. They get all the credit. Look at all the fighting we're doing. And you can imagine that. And it continues uh, through the rest of the war. That's why this long introduction of context gets you to this point. You know, how many, how many days was, was Harry Truman in combat? Or how many days were most Americans in combat in World War I? You know, we get, you know, Kennedy, the first offensive is, is in May, and the thing goes in November. So how many days of combat is that? Not very many. How many people de deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq for longer than that? I mean, so the point is this, that he, the combat he sees is in the Meuse-Argonne, which is the worst, really. It's the worst because that's when Pershing is pounding his force, his divisions to attack. So what he sees there is going to affect him for the rest of his life. And I, I, you know, I tell this story because, uh, you know, it's the impact of the, of the Americans, and that is that, you know, I, you know, I had the chance to interview a lot of Marines when I first started working for the Marine Corps, and one of the guys was 105, I think, and he, uh, he died like two weeks after I interviewed him, but in his room, he was a Marine for like a year and a half, two years, was New York Yankee stuff and then Marine Corps stuff. All of that, after all those years, that's what made, that was what was important to him. So that's an example of what, no matter how many, how few days or how many days you saw, they, they took back with them. So Truman comes away with this, with this general army attitude that the Marines uh, are glory hounds and, you know, they're taking more than their share of, of the newspaper clippings and so on. And when Lejeune comes across and wants to make that division complete, Pershing says, no. He says, you can, you'll, you'll command the second division eventually, but we will not have a division of Marines. So here's some of his dates. It gives you an idea. So there you have to evaluate his service and what that meant to him in later years, particularly with the atomic bomb. So we did get to see some of the occupations, see what happens after the war, which is very important, uh, and you know, service as an artillery commander, a battery commander. This is uh, 
Truman chasing Germans. This was a cartoon that was done by uh, one of his battery mates. It gives you the attitude of how, the, how they felt about Truman. He was aggressive, and they kind of made fun of him for that. And so for the Breens, what, what was their attitude? Well, their attitude was, no, we're, we are good, and we're going to continue to, to fight. And they go through till the last night of the war, and they, they felt like the last night of the war, they were pushed across the River Meuse, and what they felt was a needless attack. And this goes back to the casualties that we've talked about, Pershing and, and the Mar Meuse Argonne. So why did you push us across when you know the, the, uh, the, the uh, truce is coming? We talked a lot of men bridging, bridging the river, going across, getting under German or, uh, machine gun artillery fire until 11 o'clock when the peace was declared. But why? And there were con uh, congressional investigations about this, but uh, Lejeune, who commanded the 2nd Division, really was upset and uh, sort of uh, mocked his corps commander who then gave him a bad fitness report on, at the end of the war. But the point is, they, they felt this was needless, and army commands really, you know, they didn't, that was, that was not the way to go. Okay, fast forward, Truman goes back to, to, to Kansas, he does his thing, it's 1944. Now I'm going to skip a lot of the inter-service rivalry stuff and click right to World War II. So the guy on the left, Holland Mad Smith, Holland M. Smith, commander of the 5th Amphibious Corps, Central Pacific, uh, summer of 1944. Anybody know who the guy on the right is? Yeah, the Swimming 27th. Yeah, Swimming 27th. And they got that nickname from the Marines because of their, uh, what the Marines felt was lackadaisical attacks uh, on the island of Saipan. So. The 5th Corps commanded the 27th Army and two Marine divisions. And the 27th just couldn't seem to keep going and keep up with the Marine advance. The Marines were taking fire from the flanks on the east side of the island. Now, what was Smith during the, the First World War? He was chief of staff of the, second, of the brigade and later of the 2nd Division. So he lived through all of that. And when it came time uh, on, the, on the island of Saipan, and Ralph Smith couldn't continue to advance. He relieved him of command. And this was a huge debacle, really for both sides. It could have been handled a lot differently. But to take an Army general off, off the division, particularly with Marshall, Eisenhower, no, you're not doing that. So the relief, if they have a big investigation, goes up the highest levels of, of the Defense Department and basically uh, the uh, relief stood. Howland Mad Smith basically took a back seat for the for the rest of the war. You know, one of the one of the better Marine amphibious generals uh, basically lost his command too. So it was almost like a tie. So now we come to the see, see, sort of the heart of the talk, and that's the unification crisis. How many people are familiar with this? Probably not too many. Uh, so this is the unification, and you know it has some positive things of putting together the chief of staff and the four representatives of the, of the uh, services, but not the Marine Corps. So it starts basically in December of '43 during the war. Marshall has got the plan, and they're going to implement it. And guess who's guess who's in the White House? Not Truman yet. Roosevelt, and Roosevelt is a Navy file, and he loves the Marine Corps. His son enlisted in the Marine Corps. And he, he was Assistant Secretary of uh, 
the Navy in World War I, and he basically was the Marine Corps Commandant. That was one of his jobs was to take care of the Marine Corps. So uh, it caused Truman to say you know, when he took, took over the presidency, you know, this is like a Navy, we're going to get rid of the, we're going to get rid of those guys. So here's MacArthur's comments about this in 1932 of the different plan. So think about summer of 44, that's when the relief happens right in the middle of this. So the crisis increases after the war, and uh, Vandergrift, the Marine Corps Commandant, uh, has a statement to uh, the Senate Naval Affairs Committee. Geiger follows up and says, wait a minute, we, you know, this is taking the Marine Corps away. We will no longer have a Marine Corps. This is after Iwo Jima, all those specific battles. Uh, but Truman basically calls all the service chiefs in, except for the Marine Corps, the part of the Navy. And he reorganized the Marshall Plan. He let everybody argue, and he says, this is what we're going to do. We're going we're to continue with the march with this, and the, and the Marine Corps will be gone. And Eisenhower, again, says Marines should be functioning as, as you know, basically manning the landing craft, taking Army guys ashore. So back to the cartoon. Remember that. This is the Barnaby and Mrs. O'Malley. And so there was a small secret cell that was formed in uh, Quantico, Virginia. And basically, it was started with two guys, Victor and Victor Krulik and Merrill Twining, two of the brilliant minds of the Marine Corps. And there was no sign on their door. They were there to prepare statements, speeches for the Marine Corps and the commandants to, to go against this plan, this unification plan. And so finally, somebody was put down as, a, as, a, as the Chowder Society on their door. And forever after that, they were known as the Chowder Society. And they said Krulak was a little guy like Mr. O'Malley, so they reminded me of him. He's always bothering people. Okay, so it came, finally came to a head when the uh, General Vandergrift, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, makes a statement to the Senate uh, Naval Affairs Committee. And I'm going to read you his words and see what you think of them. This is some of the more famous words in the Marine Corps. In placing its case in your hands, the Marine Corps remembers that it was this Congress which, in 1798, called it into a long and useful service to the nation. The Marine Corps feels that the question for if its continued existence is likewise a matter for determination by the Congress and not one to be received by departments and quasi-legislative process enforced by the War Department General Staff. Ouch. The Marine Corps then believes that it has earned this right to have its future decided by the legislative body which created it, nothing more. Sentiment is not a valid consideration in determining questions of mutual, of natural security. We have pride and, and a presumed ground of, of gratitude that we do not rest on our, our laurels or any presumed ground. The bended knee is not a tradition of our Corps. The bended knee is not a tradition of our Corps. If the Marines as a fighting force must go, then they must go. But I think you will agree that it is that it is has has the right to depart with dignity and honor, and not, not by subjugation to the status of uselessness and servility planned for him by the War Department. The Senate committee stood up and applauded, standing ovation. And in the back, uh, Twining was sitting behind one of the Army officers. And the Army officer stood up and said, oh, man, "They're going to I'm going to throw up." I start singing the Marine Corps hymn. But basically, it turned the it turned the, the thing around, 
And uh, public sentiment said no. And there's a piece of the, the bended knee speech. So Truman spoke out later on against the, against the Marines. I mean, he was, imagine, you know, Truman is furious. You know, he's not one to be trial. I'm the president, I get to say. But he made the mistake with this letter, which he called the Marine Corps' uh, public affairs like Stalin's propaganda machine. You see that? That's the original. That's from the Marine Corps archives. And signed in big letters, Harry Truman. Uh, the Key West Conference pulled it all back. There's a picture of Truman with a rifle and all the Marines looking around. Pull the trigger. Pull the trigger. And then there's, there's one of the most, uh, probably the most critical document in Marine Corps history. That's an apology by the President of the United States to the Commandant of the Marine Corps for his remarks. Now, where have you ever seen something like that? Can you imagine Truman gritting his teeth while writing that, that thing out? And the Truman's benefit, he does put that big Harry Truman on the, on the back of it. And now it's to General Cates, who, by the way, General Cates was a uh, 2nd Division guy, 4th Marine Brigade, and he, uh, Bella Wood, took Beresh with about 16 Marines and fought through the, through the war. Okay, um, after 50, sort of quieted down once Chosen Reservoir in Inchon happened. So thank you, MacArthur. And using the Marines that way, and once the public bought into that, uh, this, this receded. And in the course of the years later, I mean, it still um, rears its head sometimes, and a good competition between the Army, Navy, Marines, etc. but, you know, that, that has to be, and that improves all the services done, in, done in the right way. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.